Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Sir Minjeet Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Bo Shopson, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine and Microbiology at the NYU School of Medicine. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, and you, sir, do research on the adaptive changes of the bacterium Staphylococcus aureus which is some serious business, so why mess around? So let's jump right in. Why study this bacterium? What makes Staphylococcus aureus so prevalent? Uh, Staph is really a problem in hospitals, uh, hospital-acquired infections in general. It's a major cause of infections there. Uh, So that's why we kind of pay attention to it, and that's why there's a lot of research dedicated to it. Uh, People go into the hospital and for a variety of reasons, but when they're there, uh, they're at risk for getting infections with bacteria, and uh, staph is a common source of those infections or cause of them. So, and the reason that it's it's considered difficult to treat is that it has this ability to adapt to different antibiotics that you might throw at it or the body's uh, own immune system, and so how does it go about doing that? Yeah, I guess... Like all bugs, they have their attributes which make them more or less easy to treat. Uh, Staph has two general properties that make it difficult to treat. One is that it's kind of virulent. Uh, This means that it's more likely to cause infections, and if it does, it's probably a little bit worse than some of the other bacteria. Uh, And so outcomes in patients may be a little bit worse with it. Uh, And two, it's often antibiotic resistant. The staph strains that exist in the hospital are resistant to a lot of our basic antibiotics. Uh, So we have to kind of go to the second or third line uh, to end up treating it. So that combination, the fact that it's virulent and somewhat antibiotic resistant, uh, makes it a little bit more difficult to treat. So when you say it's virulent, you mean that it, it, I guess, if you go down to the molecular level, it releases specific proteins that really kind of excite the body's immune system. Is that a kind of attack? Uh, the body's immune system. Yeah, that, it's a complicated uh, question. Uh, you know, virulence sort of is a, it depends on what your definition of virulence is and how you define it. Uh, basically, it's factors that help the bug cause an infection or disease, but that depends on the host and it depends on the type of disease you're talking about, what factors might be important for that. So, staph just has a lot of different ways of causing infections in people and is sort of famous for having a lot of factors that uh, help it do this. So we tend to call that overall, uh, you know, associate that with virulence, and so we call it a virulent pathogen. Right, and, and it can be found, I guess, infecting many different parts of the body, right? It's not just it, that it's in the blood or the skin, or it can, can be in the lungs, right? Am I yeah. right about that? Yeah, so that's the corollary of it being famous for having all these different types of virulence factors, is that these factors presumably allow it to cause a lot of different diseases in the hospital, so can cause, yes, uh, lung infections or pneumonia. Uh, it can cause skin infections after operations. Uh, it can even be found in the gastrointestinal tract of people colonizing them, maybe giving them diarrhea. Uh, so basically any type of infection, bloodstream infections too. It can also cause toxin-like infections, so things like toxic shock syndrome. So yeah, it's uh, famous for causing a wide variety of infections compared to some other bugs. So, of course, so since it is famous, do you have any any numbers or any stats on what percentage of patients or may, maybe just hard numbers on uh, how, how prevalent it is in hospitals? 
Well, I guess there's two ways to look at that, the overall prevalence of staph infections and then the proportion of those infections that are due to resistant versions of the bug. Mm -hmm. You know, in general, it's not like these infections are that common. Most people who go into the hospital won't get an infection. Uh, but obviously there's many, many people that go into the hospital, and so even if it's a small proportion of them, that still adds up to a lot of people getting sick. And so that's the general idea. Uh, obviously, certain people are at higher risk for infections than other, others. If you're really sick and you're immunocompromised, uh, you're probably more likely to get infections. So different types of patients are at higher risk. There won't be so minimal for them. Uh, whereas for other general people coming into the hospital, the risk will be minimal that they'll have a problem with an infection. So yeah, the risk of infection varies across people, but in general, it's relatively low. When you think on a population level, though, those numbers add up and it becomes mm -hmm. a big issue. Now you, you spoke about some strains of this infection of the bacterium that have become antibiotic resistant. Uh, one of the most, I don't want to say popular because that makes it sound like a good thing, but one of the most infamous ones is MRSA, right, or methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. And methicillin is, is the, the name of the antibiotic there that has become resistant to. How did MRSA arise? How, how, how did it come about? Yeah, nobody really knows the answer, but basically on a molecular basis, there's a gene that uh, came into the strain or in the background that gives it resistance to that class of antibiotic uh, and methicillin, you know, methicillin-resistant staph. Uh, and methicillin sort of encompasses a whole class of antibiotics called beta-lactams like penicillin, so it's a relative of the old famous penicillin. And uh, that whole class of antibiotics doesn't work so well against MRSA strains uh, because of the presence of this uh, gene that popped into the strain. Mm -hmm. How it popped in and why isn't really known, but uh, basically soon after the uh, drug was introduced in the early 1960s, these methicillin-resistant strains were seen. They probably came from other bacterial species, uh, the gene that is from other staph species, and moved into staph aureus, as they probably do uh, all the time, but there was no selection before the antibiotics, so they never really stayed there. Mm -hmm. After we start using these antibiotics, well, if you have that gene, you do a lot better in the hospital, and so those strains started to spread around a lot more. And that's the idea that, uh, you know, presumably how they began in the hospital. Uh, there are some strains that exist outside of the hospital that are methicillin-resistant, and again, nobody really knows how they came about, uh, but presumably a similar process that strains acquired this gene for methicillin resistance and then had some selective advantage in the community. So they seem to have rose independently both in the hospital and in the community. So are there any other antibiotics that you could throw at MRSA and maybe be effective? Yeah, you know, there MRSA strains are usually multi-drug resistant, so when they acquire this resistance to methicillin, they often pick up other genes uh, that help them become resistant to other antibiotics. Well, would they become resistant at once, that family, like it's the beta-lactams, would they become... Yeah, the beta-lactams will, in general, all become sort of, I wouldn't say useless, but they'll lose their activity if it's methicillin-resistant. But, yeah, the elements that allow the methicillin-resistance gene to move often harbor other resistance genes to things like tetracyclines or other classes of antibiotics, occasionally aminoglycosides. These strains probably, because they're in the hospital, accumulate these other resistant elements and they're often multi-drug resistant. But there's enough drugs out there that there's usually something we can treat it with. There's other classes of drugs that the strains aren't so resistant to. So there, it's not like there's no antibiotics uh, to treat staph aureus. Uh, 
you know, uh, those drugs aren't always as good as penicillin. That's one of the, the penicillins. That's one of the problems. Beta-lactam antibiotics are fantastic. There's a reason they've been around for so long since the discovery of penicillin. They're in general one of the best antibiotic classes, and they're very good at killing staph. So it's not that there aren't other antibiotics, but it's tough to beat beta-lactams, so they're not always as good for depending on what the indication is. So how do antibiotics, uh, I guess that might be too broad of a question, how do, how do beta-lactams uh, attack or destroy uh, a staph aureus pathogen? Yeah, this is, again, as you can see, there's a recurring theme of unknowns that there's a lot of people <laughs> don't know. Mm-hmm. We know general ideas, and we know a lot, obviously, not we, but the field of microbiology and medicine has studied this for a long time, but there's still an enormous amount of unknowns uh, about how these things work. Uh, basically, though, yeah, it prevents the bug from dividing the bacterial cell wall, uh, from helping the bug replicate itself and make another copy. And uh, in doing so, you end up killing the bug if it can't replicate uh, and divide itself. Uh, it probably kills as well through indirect mechanisms. There's responses to slowing down bacterial replication that sort of make the bug end up killing itself. Uh, so those are general mechanisms as well as the specific mechanism about preventing cell wall division. Mm-hmm. Most antibiotics seem to work in this two ways, in these two ways, a target-specific mechanism, as well as sort of more general mechanisms where the cell's just not doing well in the presence of the antibiotic, and uh, it ends up killing itself, possibly through something called oxidative stress, uh, you know, oxidative stress responses. So I would say specific as well as non-specific ways that it kills the bug. And so when you see uh, patients that have uh, staph infection or MRSA infection in a clinical setting, because you are an MD and a PhD, so in addition to research, you're also a clinician, so you do see patients. So when you see patients that have this infection, what sort of symptoms, like what shows? Or how, how I guess, do you diagnose that yeah, a patient has It just has depends. Uh, we talked a few minutes ago that, it, you know, that staph causes a lot of different types of disease, mm-hmm. so in a way... It, depends on what the disease is that it's causing and how the patients present with it. You know, on a simple level in the hospital, you identify people who are infected because, you know, they have basic things like a fever or signs of infection. You know, you feel sick, you don't feel right, uh, and you have a temperature, so your, your fever goes up. And in the hospital, a lot of patients are always getting laboratory tests for one reason or another, and a standard test looks at things like white cells, uh, which go up during infection. So that plus the fever plus the patient telling you how they're doing uh, usually says, well, I think this might be an issue with an infection, mm-hmm. maybe because they have an, an intravenous line and, you know, catheter or something like that, and that's predisposed them to getting the infection, right. or for a variety of other reasons, they just had an operation and maybe their wound is at risk for getting an infection. And then obviously you'd say, oh, he just had a surgery or she just had a surgery, let me look at the wound, and maybe it looks like red and it looks infected, and you put two and two together and you say, there's probably an and what, I guess, um, diagnostic process would you use to determine whether or not that infection is, in fact, a staph infection? Yeah, part of it is just clinical, which is uh, seeing these things over and over again and seeing what a surgical wound looks like and saying it's probably a staph infection. And the second part is getting some sort of microbiology confirmation of that. We usually send tests, basically, and the test is trying to get a specimen uh, of the wound, you know, the bacteria itself, the culture of it, and sending it to the clinical microbiology lab, 
the lab will grow it up and say, well, this is a staph, and they'll identify it for you, and there'll be a report in the computer, and it'll tell you it's a staph and what it's resistant to, if it's a MRSA or not, basically, mm -hmm. and that helps you figure out what antibiotic used to, to, uh, you need to use to treat it. Obviously, you don't always wait for those results. You might treat them before then, expecting right. it to be this or that bug, and then you confirm the results in the target therapy. And about how long does it take to get those results? Have you sent a specimen to the lab? <clears throat> it just depends on the type of culture and the, you know the specimen, like, uh, where it's coming from and stuff like that, and mm -hmm. whether there's other bacteria that are in there or whether it's a pure culture. But I'd say like 48 hours is usually about what it takes. All right. So to jump back to your research uh, with staff, you your research revolves around something called the AGR locus in, in Staphylococcus aureus, yes? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we focus on. It's just sort of a tool for us okay. to ask a question about uh, what the role of virulence is. Like we talked about, it's a little mm -hmm. bit nebulous what virulence is, and right. what does this mean for patients, and what does it mean for outcomes, and mm -hmm. what does it do for the bug in general? Right. And AGR, uh, locus and staff that's involved in virulence. It was actually uh, discovered here by my old mentor, uh, Richard Novick, who's a famous staff. He's sort of the father of staff genetics, and he's one of the people who uh, identified this locus, and he's the major person who characterized it. So AGRS, because it's so important for regulating a lot of genes involved in virulence and staph, is a good proxy for what we say is virulence, in quotes, you know, for the bug. Mm -hmm. Um, and it turns out that despite its importance in all the tests we can sort of test the strain for in infecting animals and uh, looking at lab you know, assays of virulence, it seems to be important. It turns out that uh, a lot of the strains in hospital patients are uh, defective for the lung because it doesn't seem to be operating very well. It's mutated and it's shut off. And, and what, when it comes to genetics, what is a locus? Locus is just a collection of genes just that, a collection. Yeah, that work together. So mm -hmm. the AGR isn't a single gene, there's a couple of genes in the locus that uh, help it function and uh, affect its functions, basically. So they're sort of clustered together uh, and work together uh, in concert. And is AGR short for something? Is it an ac acronym? Yeah, it's an acronym. There's all these acronyms in science. <laughs> AGR stands for Accessory Gene Regulator. Okay. And uh, the name was coined to describe that it's regulatory function, so it basically regulates all these accessory genes for the bug that are involved in virulence. Uh, there's bacterial functions like, just like with people that are involved in metabolism that are important for every strain. Uh, and then there's other genes that sort of aren't necessarily important for basic functions of the cell, but might be involved in things like virulence. And mm -hmm. the term used for that is called accessory genes. Uh, and so HR regulates those accessory genes. It also regulates a lot of the basic genes too, but to sort of emphasize the importance as a regulator of those accessory genes, it was called the accessory gene regulator. So is it possible that, because one way in which uh, a bacterium could become resistant to an antibiotic is, uh, like you mentioned, either it received uh, uh, that gene from another uh, bacteria, perhaps it divided and there was a mutation, right, that's another way. Is it possible that, that these, these genes for, that encode for resistance are maybe around but not turned on? Is it possible that the AGR kind of facilitates that? Yeah, so I think, yeah, you brought up a couple different concepts. One is that resistance come, can come about in different ways. You can alter the function of a gene, 
by natural selection within a patient who's getting the antibiotic or in a culture flask in the lab or something and make the strain resistant. But there's other mechanisms where you just acquire the gene from another bug and that's called horizontal gene transfer. So it doesn't require any new mutation or change of your own genes. You just pick off a new gene and become resistant to it. Uh, and once you have those genes, there's another issue that you're mentioning, which is that they're not always expressed. Having a gene doesn't mean it's always turned on, and that the bug might wait for the presence of the antibiotic or some stress like that to turn on the resistance. So yeah, uh, that becomes a problem when you're trying to detect resistance, like in the clinical micro lab. And so there's little tricks that you can use to that the clinical lab is because they people have been working on these problems for many years and figured out how to sort of like test the bugs to find those resistances for the situations where inducible resistance like that is an issue. So that is a problem sometimes for you know, sort of identifying resistances. So in terms of your AGR research... Oh, yeah, so the link with AGR. Yes. Sorry, I forgot about that yeah. part. <laughs> uh, yeah, so how those genes get turned on is a complicated issue because... In a way, the bug has to sense external stimuli outside of the bacteria to notice the stress of the antibiotic and transmit that message to the gene internally so that the gene gets turned on. And there's a number of sort of regulators in different bacteria that help it sense the environment in one way or another. AGR is one of the loci that do it, but you know the world is complicated and it's not the only thing that's involved with that. It's a really complicated network uh, about identifying the path, you know, the network responsible for identifying, uh, responsible for induction genes. And the network that can activate a gene like that is dependent on the environment the bug is. So if you change conditions, it might be another network that will activate that gene. So you can grow the bug under different conditions and it will be a different set of genes that's involved in its antibiotic resistance activation. So as you can imagine, this becomes really complicated to study. So how do we study it? That's what labs are for. You try to make situations a lot simple. You know, it's a reductionist approach. You make the world as simple as you can right. so you can answer, is this gene involved in that pathway under these circumstances? Yes and no. And mm-hmm. Sort of to simplify things a little bit. So essentially, uh, this, this is what I've found over the course of uh, this podcast, is that a lot of times in science, the answer is generally, it depends. Yes. Right. It depends. Uh, it depends on what conditions uh, you create for for your particular experiment. It depends on uh, a bunch of other factors. Right? Yeah, just as it does in patients, right? It depends right. on the host. It depends on the infection they're coming in, and you know the antibiotics that you're using. And there's a whole variety of factors right. that are involved. Uh, right, because every patient is different, right? Like you said, not everybody uh, gets the infection. It's plenty of patients or plenty of people in general might carry. The actual bacterium, and I believe a large percentage, a pretty big chunk of people do, but yeah. they they are they're asymptomatic. They don't have any signs of infection, and but some people absolutely tend to get yeah. Infected. So this is uh, two sides of uh, two big black boxes that you've identified. Or you're talking about one side of those two black boxes, which is why if we're all exposed to these bacteria, do most of us not get sick? The other side of the coin is why do the people get sick who do get sick get sick? You know, what factors predispose them to that? And obviously there's two sides to that coin. There's the factors of the pathogen and there's the factors of the host. And so that's what a lot of research you know, is about, trying to identify 
the two sides of that coin and you know, uh, characterizing virulence factors into different situations and host factors and trying to put them together and make stories about why some people get sick and others don't. And the obvious goal of trying to prevent them from getting sick. And the second black box is if they do get sick, why do some people do okay and other people uh, not do okay, and, you know, do not do okay. And, you know, their outcomes are worse and they may even die. And that's the same uh, two sides of the coin. There's the same two sides of the coin to that, right? You have the bacterial side and the host side. Maybe some people are just sicker at baseline and they have other comorbidities that allow them to, uh, that don't allow them to do well. And uh, on the other side of the coin, they might be infected with a particular version of staph that's nastier or more virulent and ends up giving them a worse outcome. So those are two big areas of research that a lot of people work on trying to figure out. But as you said, it's very uh, circumstance dependent, and mm. there's a lot of caveats to that. So I think it doesn't matter what field you're in, medicine, microbiology, economics, uh, when you get down deep into things, that, um, there's a lot of caveats you have to throw out there about mm. the, the statements you make about things. Right. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of, right, and part of the reason for that is a lot of times when you do this research, you have to make a bunch of simplifications, as you mentioned. Yeah. So it's important when you're when you when you do an experiment and you and you have some results, it's important to kind of not extrapolate too far, right? That's a, that you would say an important part of the research. It's, it's to, I guess you, you do an experiment and then I guess if you have an idea of what that might be hinting at, you do several more experiments to confirm that you don't just extrapolate. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we all try to sell our work a little bit. <laughs> so you try to say, oh, this will have a very important implication. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, what you're talking about is the translation of basic science research into uh, practical applications. That's a big buzzword that everyone uses now about translational science. Okay. How are you going to translate it? Uh, obviously, like all buzzwords, it's, uh, it's useful and it describes an important point, but it's also uh, an oversimplification. Everything can be translational. Mm -hmm. think about it enough, uh, any form of research. But yeah, the idea is that you come up with ideas from these simplified uh, experiments in the lab. Uh, uh, they help you generate new ideas about how to think about bigger problems and how you might tackle them. Uh, and then you do more experiments to see whether those connections really are true or not. That's sort of the bottom-up approach. Mm -hmm. uh, there's different ways you can do research, obviously can start looking at these basic phenomenon and studying them and then trying to connect them to bigger processes. And you can also do top-down research where you study patients directly and outcomes. And then you try to work backwards and say, well, this looks like this or that is important. Maybe resistance or virulence is important in this or that situation. And then trying to work downwards uh, to the specific factors. And, uh, I think both approaches are healthy and they inform each other. Uh, obviously, everyone has their bias and the way that they like to do their work. Some are bottom-up and some are top-down. I think it's good to integrate both approaches. So if, if we look at patients, or let's say we look at the population level, whether it's people or whether we're discussing the population of bacteria, uh, to, to what extent... Because, um, you, you know, you hear in, in the news often that, hey, if you're, if you're a primary care doctor and you have a patient that comes in with... Uh, some, I don't know, respiratory infection, cold, whatever it is, don't be too, you know, don't don't just jump up and prescribe an antibiotic. It might be a viral infection, right? So to, to, to I guess my question here is, like, to what extent does the, the over-prescription of antibiotics kind of lead to antibiotic 
resistant bacteria. Yeah, I mean, the presumption is at the end of the day, it's antibiotic use that's driving a lot of this resistance. Otherwise, why would there be an advantage to being resistant right. in the absence of that pressure? So presumably, yes, we're driving a lot of this, and that's why resistant strains are a bigger problem in the hospital. You can look at this in two ways. There's a good side to that. It means we've gotten a lot better at taking care of people, uh, whereas in the past people would die. And, uh, you know, obviously, life expectancy has gone way up. Mm. I would be dead <laughs> at my age a long time ago. I'm 43, and you know, a lot the not too distant past uh, wouldn't have lived this long. And uh, now it's because of antibiotics and other things related to medical care that we're able to live a lot longer. And of course, basic things like sanitation and other factors as well. Uh, so. One of the consequences to having all these great techniques about keeping people alive through cancer and a lot of other problems is that through that treatment, they become more susceptible to infections, and we have to treat those infections with antibiotics, and that's why antibiotics get used a lot in the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, because we're cautious, we don't want people to die because they are succumbing to an infection that's otherwise treatable. And as you talked about before, or as we mentioned before, diagnosing these infections is a combination of clinical and microbiology work that involves a lot of experience and a lot of, uh, you know, I guess, uncertainties around it. So when anytime there's uncertainties and high stakes, like people living and dying, people are going to tend to give the antibiotics first mm -hmm. uh, under those situations rather than take a chance that a patient might die. So you can see uh, very clearly that there's a lot of pressure to use antibiotics. Right. And that pressure comes from a real need. People will die if they're not treated with antibiotics right. in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So there's a reason why that their antibiotics are used a lot. In other settings, and what I think a lot of doctors try to emphasize outside of the hospital, in particular in the community, with people with colds, uh, those are caused by viruses, and antibiotics don't work against the antibacterial antibiotics don't right. work against them. Mm -hmm. So they shouldn't be treating those with antibiotics in general. It's not always easy to tell uh, when something is due to a virus or a bacteria, so there's the that fudge factor again. Mm -hmm. And people in general want to get something to get better, and so there's a lot of pressure on doctors to use antibiotics outside of the hospital. But in general, there's a lot greater margin of safety. Uh, most people who are healthy will overcome the, the minor infection that they have, and antibiotics in general are needed a lot less outside of the hospital. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of emphasis, since there's more people outside of the hospital than in the hospital, to target that as an area that would reduce antibiotics. And that certainly seems pretty reasonable to me, mm -hmm. to focus on that. So you need to focus in both areas, obviously, in the hospital and the community. Are there any, I guess going back to, uh, like, community primary care physicians, are there any uh, widely available antivirals that they might be able to prescribe if they suspect somebody has a cold? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are antivirals, but they're not necessarily good for uh, viruses that cause common colds and oh, stuff okay. like that. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you have herpes infection, yeah, there are some antiviral drugs for that. Right. But herpes doesn't cause the common cold. There are other groups of viruses. And as of yet, there aren't good treatments for that. Uh, you can argue that even if we have treatments for that, if it's self-limiting, maybe you cut a day or two off, but there's some probably something to be said about having letting your immune system deal with that right. and not take another potentially toxic drug. But mm -hmm. right now it's not even a problem because there really aren't great compounds for you know, great drugs out there for treating those infections. So mm -hmm. uh, right now there aren't a lot of choices for that, which is okay for the most part because they're self-limiting. You don't get over colds. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point that you don't need to 
necessarily true. But again, you could imagine there's a lot of pressure on doctors uh, from patients as well as yeah, uh, from their profession that they don't Come want to Come on, miss doctors, things. give me an antibiotic. Exactly. I'll feel better. I want to feel better. <laughs> yeah. And also that they potentially don't want to miss someone who might have, uh, even if it's a low probability that right. they have a bacterial superinfection or co-infection. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is, and they don't want to necessarily be accused of missing that. For both medical reason, legal reasons, but also because obviously doctors want their patients to do well, and they don't want them to get sick. And so uh, there's always that uncertainty and fear factor that comes into play with that as well. So it's not so easy to make those decisions. You know, doctors aren't uh, charged with public health when they're uh, tasks when they're treating a patient. There's a relationship that's a personal relationship with the patient. Mm -hmm. So you're not treating in a population, right. you're treating the individual who's in front of right. you. And in a way, your contract and your agreement is with them not with the population at large. It's not that you might not think of, well, I don't want to damage the rest of the population, mm -hmm. but your main priority in that situation is to make sure the patient that is coming to see you is cared for as best you can. So those other concerns, are it's not that they're not there, it's, but they're a little bit secondary. Oh, good. That's a, that's a good point about, yeah, not treating the population, treating the patient. But in... in so in terms of... Uh, you can argue whether that's right or wrong, <laughs> but yeah. uh, in, in, in a practical sense, mm -hmm. you know, that's the case, and that's the way I think my impression would be that a lot of, a lot of doctors see it that way. In, so in the case of antibiotics, I, for the longest time, I thought, and this was, I guess, a little naive of me, that for one infection, there's one bacterium, for that one bacterium, there's one antibiotic. For the longest time, I thought that. And, uh, of course, I've since learned a lot more about, about how these things work. But, so, antibiotics, uh, generally, I guess they, like you mentioned, um, uh, methicillin, for example, it, it, it attacks how staph uh, divides, how its membrane divides, so that it kills it well before it has the ability to divide into another um, Multiply, basically, right? So, but antibiotics work, different antibiotics work in different ways. They target different things. And what a lot of people may not know is that our bodies are full of, of microbes, right? Some that are healthy, some that we need. And some of these might also be destroyed when we take antibiotics. Is, is that true? So, yeah. in, in that sense, what, what, what type of effects or unintended effects might antibiotics have. Yeah, I guess from your statement, there's a couple of points about it. One is, you're right though, in general, most infections are caused by a single species of microbe. So this is called the monomicrobial nature of infection. So in general, if you have a staph infection, you usually don't have four other bacteria that are associated with mm -hmm. it, or at least we don't think that. Most of the culture will grow out relatively purely for not just staph, but a particular strain of staph. Presumably, this is the same for many other infections. Obviously, there's always caveats and there's subtleties to that. It depends how you, how strictly you define monomicrobial or not. But as a general rule, that's right. Then for that single infection, there's, it's true that there isn't one antibiotic that you can treat it. In general, you know, people have developed enough antibiotics now that there's usually more than one class of antibiotics. So yes, you can attack it from different routes and different mechanisms. And that's the whole point. If it's resistant to one of them, you need to use a class or a different mechanism, otherwise they'll have cross-resistance to it. So that's why people try to come up with different ways to attack the bug. 
and the third thing, as you said, if you use the antibiotic, are there sort of uh, side effects or, you know, to take a sort of, uh, I guess, something from the newspaper, collateral damage is the <laughs> saying, another buzzword that people always use. Is there collateral damage from using them in the sense that it messes up your microbiota? These are the bugs that normally colonize you. So, yes, the point is well taken that uh, microbes are all around us and we're colonized by a lot of them. And, you know, depending on what newspaper you read, they'll always <laughs> talk about how there's more bacterial cells in you uh, than mm -hmm. human cells, uh, depending on how you define it, mm -hmm. for example, in your GI tract. Obviously, most of those bacteria and organisms are not in you in the sense that they're not in sterile places in you. They're part of the outside world and they're colonizing you. Mm. From your between your mouth and your behind is an open tube, and that's where a lot of them live. <laughs> okay, in the nasal passage in your mouth. They're not mm. necessarily floating around in your bloodstream, although we are all in, have all been infected by viruses and so forth. And there is a component to them intrinsically as part of us, but that's a much smaller component. Usually, people are talking about colonization. And yes, antibiotics, <clears throat> because they work very broadly. Uh, they usually don't just kill one type of bacteria. There's more uh, than one species that get affected to it, so even if that by them. So even if you wanted to kill a staph, you'll often end up killing other colonizing bacteria on you and your GI tract and your nasal passages and stuff. Uh, and presumably, those bacteria are performing a function, so there might be some downsides to that. Uh, they prevent us from getting sick from other bacteria, like getting gastroenteritis, you know, salmonella or shigella, or Indigenous microbes probably give us some resistance to getting infection from that, so when you wipe them out, it makes you more susceptible to getting some infections. And they also probably serve an immune function. The gastrointestinal tract, where a lot of bacteria are, uh, the GI tract is an immune organ. It senses all of the bacteria in that environment, and it probably, has, uh, probably does have profound effects on your immune system, the GI tract, that is. So when you perturb the microbiota in there, it affects your immune system as well. In the past, this was really difficult to study because we really didn't have the technology to study microbial communities and groups of bacteria. And the field of immunology didn't have as much advanced techniques either. And it's not that people didn't think this was probably an issue. It was just that people didn't have a way to study it. <clears throat> now, with new technology, there's a way to study it. So it's opened up a whole new field. And mm -hmm. you'll see in the newspapers stories about microbiota and how people right. are trying to characterize it. So that's what that's about. And Yes, that's another reason why we are trying to be careful with antibiotics, not just because it promotes antibiotic resistance, but because it's affecting your own uh, flora that is probably healthy for you to keep, both in terms of the immune system and putting up the defense against other bugs by competing against them. Are you familiar with uh, the recent big story about the microbiome of the New York City subway system? Have you... Uh, uh, yeah. Read anything about that? Uh, uh, I read about the paper, but uh, I heard about it. The, mm -hmm. genome, the person who did that study works at the New York Genome Center downtown, and I heard a seminar about it. And it seemed really interesting, a very high-tech approach to looking at microbial communities in the subway. Mm -hmm. so, so it was interesting. But uh, I'm, you said you didn't maybe didn't see the specifics of the study, but in general, there, like, there are microbes pretty much everywhere, right? And yeah. and. I guess a majority, like, you, I guess you can kind of, uh, kind of logically think about this, that a majority of them must not be too pathogenic to us, otherwise we'd be sick all the time. Yeah, and I, I think there's two ways to look at it. Uh, one is that, you're right, they're not 
they don't have the particular factors that make them virulent in us and human beings, uh, so they don't necessarily cause disease. Uh, the other side of that coin, of course, again, is that we have an immune system. So for people whose immune system is completely gone, right. uh, yeah. for example, from cancer chemotherapy, mm -hmm. uh, they might become susceptible to some of those germs. But yeah, it's it's always, uh, you know, I don't know, it's like this, uh, a two-sided coin in a way, the host and the bacteria itself. So virulence can only be defined by thinking about both of them in concert. So yeah, many of them don't have factors that make them virulent uh, for people like us, people who have immune systems uh, to prevent us from getting infected from them. Yeah, so most of them it's true, not pathogenic for us in a general sense. So let's switch gears for a second. Um, another thing that you study or that you might study is quorum sensing. Could you talk a little bit about what quorum sensing is and why it might be in another kind of uh, interesting way to approach battling bacteria? Yeah, uh, I mean, the accessory gene regulator is a quorum sensing system. So oh, maybe yeah, it is. That's ah, how okay, I got okay. into <laughs> studying quorum right. sensing, is that the system that regulates virulence and staph happens to be a quorum sensing system. So we talked about before just how bacteria sense their environment. This is just quorum sensing as one way. The bacteria can sort of, you know, a mechanism that it can use to sense its environment. Basically, the bacteria, and probably all bacteria didn't, do this, we focus on pathogenic bacteria, but probably every species has a form of quorum sensing. They secrete small molecules outside of the cell, and then they detect the, I guess, the density or uh, amount of that small molecule uh, with some sort of receptor on the surface of the bug. And uh, usually the genes that do this secrete the, set the small molecule and sense it are part of the genetic system called like a locus, where they're related, so the AGR system is a typical one for that sensing system. And yeah, what does this do for the bug? Well, we can anthropomorphize again and say, what does the bug want? But uh, in general, it probably helps it coordinate gene expression across all the bugs in a culture, for example, or all the bugs in, in an agglomeration. So obviously bacteria don't just exist as single cells in general. There are thousands and millions of them because they're so small and they exist in a group. And this allows them to communicate as a group with each other and say, well, let's all turn on our virulence factors at once. When the threshold level of this small molecule gets to a certain point, we're probably in a too crowded location, the area is too small for us, we need to change our gene expression profile, and uh, we're much more effective if we all do it at once than if we do it individually. So right. the quorum sensing system allows them to turn them on. And obviously there's, you can envision a lot of different situations where there would be different effects, diffusion of the molecule would be different in small places. So it can sense small areas would be one of them, or even in large areas it can sense density when it's just a lot of bacteria. So it can be used for different purposes perhaps depending on the situation. But basically it helps the bug sense again its environment. Right. So, so when it comes to using um, antibiotics, like we mentioned uh, a bunch of times now, that antibiotics generally um, attack a mechanism on the bug when it's dividing, to stop it from dividing, and that's how it kills it. So quorum sensing, I guess, there's so there's a, a bit of a curve where, I guess, the bacteria population in, I guess, whatever area, it grows. And then due to quorum sensing, it does it at, at some point kind of slow down or stop growing? And then at which point antibiotics would 
probably not work. Yeah. So what you're getting at is like another big problem in the field. <laughs> you mentioned several of them already. Uh, you know, uh, one of them was this issue of who gets sick, and then the other issue is who does uh, well or not. And another is how best to kill the bacteria. And traditionally, antibiotics work against dividing bacteria. That's sort of an Achilles heel of the bacteria, right? And they have to replicate rapidly, and that's how their disease is caused. They're, they cause their disease a lot. Of, a lot of it is caused just by replication and having high bacterial burdens in you. So that's a good place to stop it. There's a lot of functions that are required for growth, and most antibiotics target growth. But once they're there, there's another problem of persistence when they're no longer growing. And that's when antibiotics don't do so well. Uh, the antibiotics we have in general, like penicillins and stuff, and derivatives and all the beta-lactams, tend to do best on rapidly dividing bacteria. And persistence is a big problem for patients. Once you're after, you're, if you've survived the initial onslaught of the bacterial infection, uh, once they're in you, though, if they're sitting, for example, on a prosthetic device like an artificial hip or an artificial valve in your heart, uh, they're really hard to get rid of once they're no longer necessarily dividing there because, again, the antibiotics don't get rid of them so well. And how do we manage this in a hospital? We do surgery and we take it out. But that's a real bummer, as you can imagine, if you're the person who has that hip and, and uh, there's a lot of problems with that and patients don't always do well when you have to take those devices out. So that's another major focus of research is how do we best kill these bacteria that are non-replicated, the so-called persisters, that will survive general antibiotic treatment. And there's a lot of people trying to figure out different compounds for that and different ways to kill them. Uh, quorum sensing may or may not be linked to that as the bacteria get into a different situation where there's a lot of them. They run out of nutrients and they stop growing and things like AGR switch off. But other factors probably switch on uh, and those regulatory mechanisms might be, you know, might help us get information that allows to kill the bacteria stationary phase in those persistent states. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, people working on that sense. AGR is part of that. We work a little bit on antibiotic killing related to AGR, and it seems to affect that as well. So uh, there's overlap between a lot of the genes that are involved in general regulation and antibiotic resistance. So again, this idea of target and off-target, there's target genes that are things that the antibiotic attacks directly, and there's off-target things that sometimes the bacteria ends up killing itself that potentially you can use to potentiate killing maybe the stationary phase. So uh, that's this area of persistence work where people are working on off-target killing. Yeah, so the more that I learn about microbes, the more I'm just amazed at how resilient they can be, which is, I guess it's kind of a bummer that they're trying to kill us. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind well, of they're not trying. It's <laughs> or if we anthropomorphize them a little yes. bit, they're trying to kill us. <laughs> well, but they're trying to survive. just replicate. That's yeah. it. This they're is evolution, obviously. Mm -hmm. you know, it's the reason why they're fun to study and why they're easier to study in ways than some ways than other creatures that are multicellular is that they're very easy to grow and they mm -hmm. grow very rapidly. So natural selection and evolution works on them extremely rapidly. And so you can study these things in a test tube, whereas you can't study it on a larger scale thing like people and the basic concepts of selection that are a lot harder to study in larger multicellular organisms that don't divide so rapidly. So, yeah, they're just a, an ideal vehicle for studying adaptation and evolution. And 
we try to take advantage of that to learn about them so we can prevent people from getting sick. At the end of the day, the bugs are just trying to replicate and be more fit. And sometimes people stand in the way of that, and that's why we get sick. But like we talked about, most of the time, it's not an endpoint in itself. Uh, for most of these bugs, they're commensal, and their job, if you will, is just to colonize and replicate and do well. Sometimes they find themselves in other situations where that's not the case. There is an exception to that, as there always is. Uh, there are so-called obligate pathogens, things like tuberculosis, where there's no known life cycle of colonization that's independent of infection. You're either infected with TB and it has some negative consequences for you, mm. uh, for a lot of people, or uh, you don't have it at all. It's not like a constituent of your skin flora or something that you know, maybe helps your skin uh, fight off other bacteria or something like that. So there are exceptions. So did you study staff from the get-go? You, you, you are an MD and PhD. Did you do your degrees... Uh, concurrently, or did you do one and then the other? How did you go about There's different ways to do that. Uh, yeah. I did it originally as part of an MD-PhD program, so okay. it was just a scholarship, basically, that helped pay for medical school and then do research along with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was either that or the Navy, so it was a, <laughs> not the Navy so bad, but uh, you know, I like doing research, and so they'll pay me to do what I like doing, and I get to school paid for, so it seemed like a pretty good deal to me. And I started out doing much more basic work in cell biology, looking at protein transport in cells on a very basic level. But I thought when I was doing that at, in medical school uh, that it might be hard to tie that directly together with my clinical work and that I'd have to make a choice at some point either really be in the lab or to see patients. Mm -hmm. And I kind of liked infectious diseases and microbiology because I think the basic concepts in a way can be tied a lot more easily to clinical practice, so I can use my clinical sort of observations to inform my work a little bit more easier. And I also always liked evolution, uh, for whatever reason, uh, just sort of seemed interesting to me. And like we talked about before, bugs are a good way to study evolution, it's you know, much easier than in other systems. So combine two things that I liked, clinical work as well as studying ecology and evolution. So you're saying that evolution is real? That it's not just a theory? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on who you talk to, obviously. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, research in general is just about being able to make predictions about the future. And obviously, the scientific method, whether it's math or physics or anything, microbiology, allows you to make predictions. And to me, uh, that's the problem with other alternative theories. They don't allow you to make predictions so valuable to people. So dogma or your opinions aside, mm -hmm. how useful is exactly. that train of thought? Mm -hmm. It's not very useful to us. Uh, thinking about evolution mm -hmm. gives us a lot of power to predict the future, so that's useful to people. It's what lets us build buildings and <laughs> <laughs> do everything else as well, not right. just for evolution, but mm -hmm. science in general. So w when you were uh, a graduate student, thinking back, what did you find to be most challenging? either about being a researcher or about being a medical student? I was going to say rent, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that qualifies too. That's, yeah. a, that's, I guess that's uh, not really addressed in yeah. uh, a lot of cases when it comes to students. Yeah, everybody's yeah. different. You know, yeah. For me, one of the gaps I had is that I, I never really focused on English when I was an undergrad or even in high school. I tested out a lot of the classes and I never really took English classes. I would just take a test and then that was it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of research and work is about communicating your ideas and thoughts, and being a strong writer is an important part of that. 
And if I could go back, kind of, I would probably have emphasized that more in my education. And, you know, I also like the creative aspect of it, so I would have, I didn't see that when I was necessarily younger, how important that part of it is. Uh, sort of been able to survive communicating enough now, but it definitely made the learning curve a little harder for me. But, uh, so that was an issue, um, you know, learning how to communicate your work in a way that deeper level, I guess, than, you know, most of the time we're used to just talking like this. Scientifically, you have to be very clear with your thoughts and language. Mm -hmm. There can only ideally be one interpretation of the statements you make so that they can't be misinterpreted by people. You know, for most people, or at least for myself, that's not something that comes naturally. I don't talk that way like we're talking now. It's a much right. more loose form of communication, so uh, that was something I had to learn to think about, amongst the many other things. <laughs> to learn. I think during training you have to learn functionally how to operate whatever system you're going to do in life. In the lab it's lab systems, in the hospital it's hospital systems. So there's a practical sense sort of learning with your hands. And then you also have to treat, teach your mind to learn conception about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And the two sides of those things have to merge at some point in order to have, for you to have a deep understanding of so hopefully by just immersion in the field long enough, you'll be able to merge those two things, your hands and your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and for different people, some learn better with their hands, some learn better on the theoretical side with their mind. But I think at any sort of high level, you want to try to combine the two of those as best you can. You have to have the mm -hmm. practical knowledge as well as the theoretical knowledge. That's what training is about, teaching you to get those skills so that you think theoretically have practical skills. So what piece of advice, uh, advice might you give to, I guess, newly trained researchers, newly minted PhDs coming out of the pipeline? What, what might you say to them? If you were able to address every <laughs> PhD graduate across America right now, what would you say to them? Oh, uh, choose another field? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I think like everything, just general advice in life. Uh, you know, try to do what you're, you enjoy doing in life. Mm -hmm. It'll give you not only fulfillment in life by doing that, but there's a better chance that you'll be successful at it. Uh, and, you know, do the best you can, whatever uh, the world throws at you in terms of the, the cards you're dealt with, school and education and the job opportunities that are open to you. This doesn't matter if you're in a PhD field or anything else. Make the best of the opportunities that present to you and apply yourself as hard as you can. Uh, that way, you get uh, enjoyment out of what you're doing by being good at what you're doing and being successful at it. And hopefully, you give back to other people and help the people around you and the world around you as well. Then you get gratification out of it. At least that's for me uh, one of the reasons that I do this is I enjoy it and it gives me gratification. At the end of the day. Uh, I get some results from the stuff we're doing. I move the field forward inch by inch in my small little way, mm -hmm. and uh, I enjoy the work that I'm doing. So, uh, for me, that's given me a lot of fulfillment in it, just trying to do stuff that I enjoy and uh, applying myself. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're related in a way. You can enjoy something more when you apply yourself to it and care more about it. Right. It doesn't matter if it's in medicine, PhD research, or whatever form of research you want to do, or mm -hmm. whether you're on Wall Street, or whether you're a banker, you know, lawyer or whatever, a 
applying yourself towards something, caring about it, mm-hmm. investing yourself in it, will give you a little bit more fulfillment in life. You know? yeah. Before I was in this field, I worked as bartender, waiter, uh, you know, <laughs> stock boy, mm-hmm. you know, 20 other jobs through college and before that. And I enjoyed a lot of them and uh, tried to get the most out of them and learn from them and apply myself. And if I wasn't doing this, I would do something else. And hopefully I'd apply myself and be happy. So to me, that's the key, just trying to get the most out of whatever you're doing. That's a great piece of advice. Um, once you finished school, were there any any surprises, kind of, about about this field, whether about the research field or the, the clinical field that you kind of encountered? Yeah, I'm surprised every day. I mean, you're constantly learning about it. That's what I love about it. Uh, to me, that's why it's a really rewarding field. Uh, you know, it's constantly challenging. Every day, there's new things happening. Every patient is different. Every day in the lab, you find out something new. Or, not every day, but <laughs> some days more than others. And, uh, that's what makes it interesting and challenging is to constantly be uh, you know, addressing those new things and trying to figure stuff out. So uh, I would say it's that it's surprising, but not surprising. That's why it's an interesting field. But yeah, I'm constantly surprised by things all the time. Is there one thing that's more surprising than anything else? Uh, I don't think so. It's just that, yeah, it's never what you expect it to be. There's always something new coming up. You just want to prepare yourself to try to see that and have eyes open enough to take advantage of it. Take advantage of the surprises that life gives you, I guess. Guess That's another great piece of advice, then. (laughs) But you are doing fantastic research, and I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. All right. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.